we now turn to the hematologic cancers beginning with NHL and CLL as reviewed by Dr. John Leonard. At ASCA, the long-awaited data set of the so-called PRIMA study of maintenance rituximab was presented, and I asked Dr. Leonard for his thoughts on this data set. We've been waiting for results of the PRIMA study for a while. We've known that maintenance rituximab is useful in patients who have received single-agent rituximab, in patients who have received chemotherapy alone, and in relapse patients who've received chemo-R. And the PRIMA study really answers or goes after the fundamental question of if you have a patient who gets treated with rituximab and chemotherapy, namely R-CHOP, what is the benefit of maintenance rituximab? And so this is a large study, really one of the larger studies ever done in follicular lymphoma, over 1,200 patients. And what occurred with these patients was that they were all treated with immunochemotherapy with chemo plus rituximab, and about three-quarters of the patients on the study received RCHOP. Those patients, which is the vast majority who went into a CR or a PR, then were randomly assigned to rituximab maintenance one dose every eight weeks or so for two years versus observation. And the primary endpoint here was progression-free survival. So I think a couple of the key points to keep in mind when we talk about the population that went into the study are that these were patients with histologically confirmed follicular lymphoma, and these were patients that tended to need treatment. They had one of various criteria requiring therapy, so this wasn't necessarily your watch-and-wait type of patient. These were patients that either had bulky disease or symptomatic lymph node enlargement, compressive symptoms, so really people with substantial amounts of disease. And as I said, three-quarters of them received RCHOP. The rest largely received RCVP. And the primary endpoint of the study was PFS, and that was MED. When you look at two-year PFS, and this is really the main endpoint, the main finding of the study, 82% of the people who received rituximab maintenance were in remission and had not progressed versus 66% in the observation arm. So roughly 15% more people remained in remission at two years due to the fact that they received rituximab maintenance. So I think These are important data with regard to progression-free survival. The obvious question that one would ask is, well, what is the toxicity? And the toxicity really was quite similar between the two arms. In fact, they did a quality of life analysis, which showed that QOL was pretty similar. The main difference in what we worry about with rituximab maintenance relates to the incidence of infections. And there was a minor increase in non-significant, namely grade 1 and grade 2 infections in the rituximab maintenance arm. This was roughly, as I recall, about a 15% difference or so. However, the life-threatening sorts of serious infections like sepsis were not seen in any difference between the two arms. So this is a positive study from the standpoint of PFS. I think it will provide further support for those people who are using rituximab maintenance to continue to use it. I think the big question that one might say as a caveat is, well, there's no overall survival difference. They didn't report overall survival, at least, and that in follicular lymphoma is always a question. But on the other hand, I think this will provide more support for the use of maintenance in follicular lymphoma. Again, remembering that this cuts things off at two years years of maintenance. There are ongoing studies looking at longer periods of time of maintenance, but at this point, these benefits were seen with a two-year duration of the maintenance therapy. So agree or disagree, the chance of progressive disease was reduced about 50% in patients who got maintenance. Yes, it's an absolute number of 15%, but it's a 50% using that sort of hazard ratio sort of analysis. You're right, it's 50%. 
And how do you see this being implemented or not implemented in your own practice? Well, I think, you know, certainly many people have started to use maintenance for tuximab. We obviously have a lot of studies and have been governed by those to a degree. I certainly, even since this was presented, have had patients in to talk about this. I think that certain patients certainly like having a break from being in the doctor. And in my mind, again, not as the patient, but as the doctor, one dose every two months of therapy is a long time of therapy where the patient continually is being reminded that they have the disease. On the other hand, many patients like the idea of continuing on maintenance and kind of the security blanket of getting continual treatment and monitoring. I think I will use maintenance more than I have in the past. I don't think it's absolute that everyone get it, but certainly, as Rich Fisher said in the discussion of this, we generally, and our patients generally, want people to stay in remission longer, and this seems to do it. And so he made a pretty strong statement arguing that this should be really standardly done for patients with follicular lymphoma who are in response after a rituximab-containing treatment program. And I think that's a reasonable point. What data do we have right now, indirectly or in any way, in terms of duration of treatment, something you mentioned being looked at in study? It kind of reminds me a little bit of some of the stuff with hormone therapy and breast cancer, but do we have any reason to connect duration with this? Well, at this point, I think that, number one, we don't have positive data to say that we should go longer than two years. And my personal concern is that as we go longer with these prolonged periods of B-cell depletion, once you get out to five years or so, you might get more problems with significant infections and these prolonged immunoglobulin deficiencies, which you can see in some patients. So I think that using maintenance for two years is an easier thing to say that is a good idea based on these data. I think stretching it out to five years, in my mind, I'm not there yet. Obviously, you have a patient who's been doing well, and it's, as you say, analogous to the hormone situation in breast cancer. You have a patient who gets out two years, what do you do at that point? Do you stop it or not? They may like continuing on it or they may not, but I think the data really should be stop at two years, and I think that makes sense at this point in time. I was thinking more in terms of theoretical. I mean, people postulated with the endocrine therapy that was some kind of cytostatic effect that would correlate with duration. Any reason thinking about how rituximab works in this situation to think it might be better longer term? I don't have a direct reason why I would expect it to work better longer term, particularly since, you know, people are in remission largely at the time. Then again, you might argue that a CR patient who's doing very well wouldn't benefit from any maintenance at all. And in fact, the Prima study showed that every group, whether you were in a CR or a PR, benefited from maintenance. So extending that argument, that would make a theoretical argument that continuing out longer would make a difference. But I think all of this is theoretical at this point. Were you surprised at the magnitude of the impact on progression-free survival? Well, again, I think that when you talk about the 50% reduction, it's a relative risk reduction. So meaning if you're starting with 100 people at two years, it's really benefiting somewhere in the range of about 15 people. You know, a third of them will relapse and half of those you prevent their relapse. So 15 out of 100 people, some would argue that's pretty significant. Others would argue it's not hugely significant because the vast majority of people aren't benefiting. I think this is probably around the par of what I would expect. I think the long-term data will be interesting. I think, you know, whether or not these curves stay apart, to me, is the most crucial issue because whether or not this benefit translates into an overall survival benefit or at least a longer-term benefit as far as a risk reduction, I think will be of great interest. How about abstract 8005, a randomized study of rituximab in patients with relapsed or resistant follicular lymphoma prior to high-dose therapy? 
So this study was a study that looked at patients with recurrent follicular lymphoma getting autologous stem cell transplant. And I think one of the kickers is that autologous stem cell transplant, while it has a role in recurrent indolent lymphoma and certainly can be associated with long-term good outcomes in some patients, is not something that we're doing a whole lot lately these days, particularly because we have so many new drugs that have come along. This study looked at patients, and it's a study that really accrued patients going back over a decade ago, gave them, these were largely second and third line patients in remission, getting an autologous transplant, and gave them rituximab purging around the time of their stem cell collection, and then gave them rituximab maintenance. This was for a two-year period as well after their autologous stem cell transplant. And the bottom line of this study was that rituximab purging did not seem to make a big difference with regard to progression-free survival, but the effect of maintenance seemed to be more significant with regard to progression-free survival. And so this made the argument that you could improve PFS if you're doing an autotransplant through the use of maintenance rituximab. Also, importantly, the rituximab given as an in vivo purge around the time of stem cell collection didn't seem to hurt anything, which is obviously important. And so I think that the use of rituximab in conjunction with autotransplant is becoming more and more common, particularly in follicular lymphoma when it's done. This provides support for it. Now, the one big caveat of this study is that this goes back a while. Many of these patients had not received rituximab prior to entering this protocol. So these were largely rituximab-naive patients getting an autologous stem cell transplant. And obviously today, someone getting an autologous stem cell transplant will have had rituximab at various points in time. And so whether or not these data, and I think this is the main criticism of these data, whether or not these data apply to a population today getting an autotransplant for follicular lymphoma when that population, all of whom have received prior rituximab on multiple occasions, certainly is going to be a different group. And the role of rituximab here may be a little bit less. Another paper I want to ask you about actually was presented at ASH, was really a huge splash at ASH, and was represented as part of the ASH-ASCO symposium at ASCO by Dr. Rummel, the bendamustine rituximab paper. Any comments about this? I don't know if there's any new data or conclusions came out of this compared to the other one. I think that this study really is one of the more important presentations that's occurred at a meeting in regard to lymphoma in the last year or two. And so certainly people should know about it. This was the randomized trial of RCHOP versus bendamustine rituximab in frontline therapy of people with indolent and mantle cell lymphoma bendamustine approved for CLL and for rituximab refractory follicular lymphoma, now being looked at in a 500-patient study, largely follicular lymphoma patients, but a variety of other subtypes. And the bottom line of this study, which I'm sure many of people are aware of, the overall response rates were quite high, over 90% in each arm. CR rates a little bit higher with the bendamustine rituximab. Efficacy-wise, most importantly, PFS was improved in the bendamustine rituximab arm, and toxicity was less in the bendamustine rituximab arm, namely less alopecia, less infections, and less hematologic toxicity in the bendamustine arm. And these results tended to hold up not only for follicular lymphoma, but also, most importantly, mantle cell lymphoma. And so I think these really provide increasingly important evidence that bendamustine rituximab may be a useful and in some ways superior regimen for patients with follicular lymphoma and the subset of patients with mantle cell lymphoma as well as their initial treatment. 
How has this data set affected the way you take care of patients outside of study, and how has it affected the way people look at ongoing studies? Well, I think, number one, for the last part of your question, I mean, bendamustine rituximab is incorporated into an arm, at least one arm, if not every arm, of all of the major cooperative group studies in follicular lymphoma right now, or many of them, as well as mantle cell lymphoma. So I think that gives you some sense of the stamp of approval for this agent and this regimen in that all the U.S. cooperative groups are looking at it now. I think The one kind of thing in the back of everyone's mind with bendamustine are the potential for myelosuppression and that we have limited, some early data, but limited data with respect to long-term marotoxicity and secondary malignancies. And so I think for younger patients, there is a little bit of a caveat of maybe not so fast as far as using this up front. But for older patients in particular with follicular lymphoma or with mantle cell lymphoma, if they're not going to get an intensive approach, these data would argue that using a CHOPR-based regimen doesn't have quite as much rationale in follicular lymphoma or in mantle cell lymphoma. And I think that's where I'm using it more, certainly in the older patients with both diseases and those who really want to avoid alopecia in particular. I think, you know, there's really no evidence that you're compromising them by substituting BR versus the CHOPR. How about the control arms of ongoing studies? Have there been discussions about changing those as a result of these data? Well, I think right now, certainly in the U.S., the big ongoing studies are the studies that are looking at rituximab by itself in follicular lymphoma, as well as the intergroup study that's looked at CHOPR versus CHOP followed by Bexar. And so those studies were awaiting their data right now. I think most of what in the U.S. is going on with cooperative group studies in follicular lymphoma are really phase two types of studies at this point, and they are very commonly incorporating a endomustine-based regimen, mantle cell lymphoma, the same story. Now, there was another presentation, 8041, that was looking at bendamustine rituximab, but in this, in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. What did they find there? Well, as the audience knows, patients with relapsed or refractory large cell lymphoma really have a rough time. We've had drugs that people have attempted to get approved, hasn't happened. And certainly if you've got resistant large cell lymphoma or you're not a transplant candidate, certainly the survivals for recurrent large cell lymphoma in many series are as short as under six months to a year. And so we need new drugs in aggressive lymphoma. And as far as single agents, we've not seen a huge amount of progress. Lenalidomide, which we may talk about later, is one of those. But the obvious thing, given that bendamustine is active in all these other lymphoma subtypes, is how well does it work in large cell lymphoma? So this was a study that looked at bendamustine Basically, the 120 milligrams per meter squared dose, which is a little higher than what many people are using in practice, the 90 is what many people are using. And I guess the 90 was what was used in the BR Rummel study. Yes, exactly, exactly. So this is a little bit higher dose, although it is the labeled dose of bendamustine, plus rituximab being used in about 36 patients or so with recurrent large cell lymphoma. And the bottom line of this study is that the overall response rate was about 58%. And so this really suggests that in certain patients with recurrent large cell lymphoma, bendamustine rituximab is an active combination. This study is ongoing, and I think the big question here is going to be how durable are these responses? Certainly, 58% is quite respectable and on a par with things that we see like RICE and ESHAP and DAP, etc. This is an outpatient regimen that's well-tolerated. 
related. But obviously, enlarged cell lymphoma durability is an issue, and we look forward to more follow-up from this study. Certainly for elderly patients, this may be a reasonable option in particular. And as you know, many recurrent large cell lymphoma patients are elderly patients who are not great candidates for the platinum-type regimens. You mentioned lenalidomide and diffuse large B-cell and abstract 8038 looked at that. So lenalidomide, as the audience knows, is really active in many subtypes of, obviously, myeloma and in myelodysplasia. What's really peppered the abstract listing of both ASCO and ASH before it is how much lenalidomide has activity in the various lymphoma subtypes. There really doesn't seem to be any type of lymphoma where lenalidomide doesn't at least have some activity. And one of the areas is diffuse large cell lymphoma, where lenalidomide has activity in recurrent diffuse large cell lymphoma. There have been a couple of studies looked at this. This particular abstract called a number of patients, roughly 50 patients, from a variety of studies, most of which got lenalidomide as a monotherapy. A few others were in combination. And the question that this study asked, well, overall, the response rates to lenalidomide in these various studies was somewhere around the 25% response rate if you look at it all together. What this study did was analyze the patient population and patient subsets between the germinal center and non-germinal center subtypes. And as the audience knows, the non-germinal center subtype of large cell lymphoma is associated with a less favorable outcome. There have also been some links to that subset and things like the bone marrow microenvironment, vascularity, and tumor angiogenesis. And so there are some plausible links where lenalidomide might be more or less active in one subset versus another. So this is a very provocative, although perhaps hypothesis-generating study, showed that in the non-germinal center subtype, the response rate to lenalidomide was 53% versus 8.7% in the germinal center subtype. And when you look at PFS, again, that was also improved in the non-germinal center versus the germinal center subtype. So the idea that you could have a biomarker that would predict who's going to respond to lenalidomide and who's not, and in fact that it could be more active in the less favorable non-germinal center subtype, all is very interesting Keep in mind this is a retrospective study, needs to be studied prospectively. It's a relatively small number of patients, but I think it's a very provocative report and really, I think, should guide some of the future development of this drug in the large cell lymphoma setting. There's also a paper, 8037, looking at lenalidomide and transform lymphoma. You want to comment on that? Transform lymphoma is really a gamish of patients, so there are a variety. Obviously, people know that transform lymphomas tend to do less well prognostically, that being those that are large cell lymphomas that have transformed from an indolent histology. And a couple of groups, including the radioimmunotherapy studies, have tried to look at agents in this population, keeping in mind that some patients with transformed lymphoma are those who just transform, meaning with a long history of indolent lymphoma, now with a large cell lymphoma. Some have gone the other way around. These populations may be all different in how they got to the label of being transformed. But that being said, it's generally a less favorable patient population. And this study looked at the group of patients who were treated on the lenalidomide studies with a history of transformed lymphoma, 
and overall they had about 30 patients or so, and the bottom line was that about 40% response rate was what's seen, uh, about 20% CRCRUs. The median progression-free survival overall was about six months. So again, I think that this is another bit of evidence that this agent is useful in large cell lymphoma, not only in the indolent types, not only in the large cell types, but in this smaller, less well-defined transformed subset of patients. You mentioned lenalidomide in indolent lymphoma, and there was a paper, 8036, that looked at complete response rate with lenalidomide plus rituximab in these patients. So as we've seen activity with lenalidomide in recurrent lymphomas of all types, we've started to see combinations with rituximab. In fact, we have a CLGB study right now going on that's in recurrent indolent lymphoma where patients are randomly assigned to lenalidomide alone or len plus rituximab, which is a randomized phase two trial to see what does rituximab add to lenalidomide. But nonetheless, it makes sense to start looking at this agent in combination with rituximab and other agents. And as we move from the relapse setting, it makes sense to look at the upfront setting. And so the MD Anderson group has done a single-arm study where they basically took patients with previously untreated indolent lymphoma. They had about 74 patients enrolled. Only about two-thirds of them at this point were valuable at the point of ASCO. But what's exciting here, and about 30 of these patients had follicular lymphoma. The rest were marginal zone lymphoma and SLL. I think the exciting thing is that 25 out of 30 patients went into a CR, CRU for a very high both overall response rate, which was over 85%. And again, most of those were CR, CRUs. And so the idea that you can induce a CR, CRU pretty reliably in a group of patients with follicular lymphoma in a non-chemotherapy regimen certainly is better than we'd expect with rituximab alone and is quite encouraging. Now, obviously, there can be some patient selection issues with any kind of single-arm upfront follicular lymphoma study of patients, but I think this is certainly suggesting that this is a kind of a building block for other non-chemotherapy-containing regimens, as well as something that, for many patients, may be a nice alternative to chemotherapy. In CLGB, we've actually been developing this sort of concept for a while with biologic doublets, and in fact, we're just getting ready to open a trial very similar to the MDN study that will be looking at this in the multicenter setting. Again, the lenalidomide plus rituximab combination is initial therapy for follicular lymphoma. Any other ways that have been discussed in terms of integrating lenalidomide into management of indolent lymphoma? And I'm wondering specifically about maybe some kind of maintenance strategy. Well, first, there have been attempts to, and I think the Mayo Clinic group did a study where they combined RCHOP with lenalidomide concurrently and showed that at least in a phase one trial that you could give them together. And then obviously using it as a maintenance, much as what's been done in myeloma and other settings. And so there are several studies going on. I'm not so sure that that's been pursued quite as much yet in follicular lymphoma, but I think there are some studies getting on the drawing board looking at chemo-R or some combination similar to that, followed by either lenalidomide alone maintenance or lenalidomide rituximab maintenance. Certainly in mantle cell lymphoma, there's a large international study also looking at that issue as a maintenance. And I'm sure that there are other trials that will be looking at it in other lymphoma subtypes. Let's talk a little bit about CLL. First, we were talking about lenalidomide. What about paper 6508, which is a phase two study of lenalidomide in elderly patients with CLL? I think this was presented also last year. 
So a few groups have looked at lenalidomide in CLL, both in the recurrent setting and as initial therapy. And this particular abstract looked at a study from the MD Anderson saying, since many patients with CLL are elderly, can we use lenalidomide as a single agent by itself as an initial treatment for CLL? Obviously, there can be some patient selection issues with this type of study, but nonetheless, they looked at 60 patients with untreated CLL, and overall, the response rate here was about 60% for these patients. These were mostly PRs, and the treatment was well tolerated. There were some flare reactions, as people may be well aware, that with lenalidomide particularly in CLL, you can see a tumor flare reaction where there's some immune reaction and the nodes get a little bit bigger. But in general, it suggests that this is certainly safe and highly active in elderly patients as a single agent and certainly maybe a strategy that's also built upon in combination with, say, a fludarabine or bendamustine-containing regimen or as a maintenance treatment in CLL. What about the paper looking at using ofatumumab instead of rituximab with fludarabine, cyclophosphamide, I guess, OFC? Ofatumumab has been FDA-approved for patients with recurrent CLL with disease resistant to multiple prior agents and regimens, including a fludarabine-based regimen and an alumtuzumab-based regimen. The bottom line is that it is a novel anti-CD20 that has enhanced complement activity. It's also human in its structure. And so the obvious question is, if it's active in patients with refractory disease, can we use it up front? So this was a pilot study substituting ofatumumab for rituximab in the FCR regimen. So it's basically a substitution study. This was an MD Anderson study, as well as a few other centers, but it was led by Bill Werda, about 60 patients or so using two different doses of ofatumumab. And at the end of the day, the response rates were relatively high. The CR rates were also relatively high, although interestingly, the CR rates, and the CR rates were higher with a higher ofatumumab dose, but overall, they weren't dramatically different than what was seen before in the FCR data coming out of MD Anderson. And in fact, there were some analysis of this suggesting that in some ways, these patients were perhaps a little bit worse prognosis patients, and so hard to necessarily compare across studies. I think that this is an interesting approach. It makes sense to pursue. I think the question of whether a new anti-CD20 antibody, and as you know, there are several in development, whether they're actually better than rituximab, I think remains to be seen in a head-to-head sort of fashion. So when it's looked at in this sort of combination, I think we're looking for, to some degree, comparing apples and oranges across studies. But certainly this is an interesting agent that we need to study further.